0: Discussion about um, heaven, what it's going to look like and what it contains, triggered a lot of questions for people. Got some feedback this week, um, oh, I, and I appreciate the honesty of people at New Hope who are able to push back in ways that they're uncomfortable. And so I got a note from one individual who said, um, "Sorry to tell you this, but just got to be honest. Heaven sounds awful to me. Capital A, capital W, capital F, capital U, capital L. Okay, and you guys will appreciate this because he went on to say." because it sounds like it contains singing and noise and gold buildings and lots of people. And I like dark woods and I I like to be alone and I like it quiet. So you can appreciate that, right guys? Some of you can appreciate that. So, and I just appreciate the honesty. So he went on to say, so I I believe there's probably some reprogramming that's going to have to take place. Just because we have this sense of expectation that we think we understand What heaven's going to be like and we really don't understand it that's why scripture goes on to say the eye is not seen and the ear is not heard and the heart has not understood the things that god has in store for us all we know is what we know here we really don't understand what he has in store for us but one of my favorites was from um, a a nine or ten year old boy who sent this question in will we remember when we get to heaven will we remember things on this earth? I don't know if he's afraid of forgetting his parents or his friends or his experience, but he said, will we remember? Well, I'm here to tell you, yes, you will. According to my understanding of Scripture, very clearly, when one of the things we know that we do is participate in worshiping God, and we'd say, worthy is the lamb who was slain from the foundation of the world. Well, that's a historical moment. You're remembering. So it's very hard to praise a God for your salvation if you can't remember what he saved you from. So you have memory. Specifically, we understand that the individuals who are before the altar in front of God's throne who were were killed during the tribulation period, they cry out to God and say, how long before you will exact vengeance upon the earth for our blood? Meaning they remember even how they died. So we may not remember all the details specifically. I'm not sure that that would be joyful, but we will remember. We will have memory, Ted, just to answer that. Well, we're uh, stepping in this morning to a a study about... uh, I just simply titled it, I Love This Church, and it's just two weeks long, and we're going to talk about what God designed and what he originally intended for the church. So before I do that, here's what I'm going to ask you to do. I'm going to ask you to pray with me that God would center our thoughts and that he would help us to bring our attention in line with his word. Would you do that with me? Father, I ask that you would take this time right now and help us to put aside the things that distract us whether it's the things we are involved with before the service or things we'll be doing later today, things that might happen during the service, God, we ask that you would focus our attention. Help us to be as passionate about your word as we are about other things in our life. But in this moment right now, Father, we ask for that, and we, we can't do that on our own. We'll do what we can for our human ability, Father, but we ask for the power of your Holy Spirit to invade this place. God, give us the capacity to see things we've never, ever seen before. Help us to understand what you wanted to communicate to us. We give you the glory and the praise for that. And that's in Jesus' name we ask this. Amen. So, I don't know if you ever ask yourself this question. Um, I ask it on a fairly regular basis. Why do people stop going to church? Or, why do people not go to church? You may run into a number of people whom you have conversations with or relationships with who are not involved in, in a church capacity in any shape or form. Um, I've run into them on a fairly regular basis. I, as a matter of fact, about a week and a half ago, I was in a store, and um, somehow I got in a conversation with a worker there, and they asked what I did. And I said, well, I pastor a new church in haslett called New Hope. And their immediate response was, wow, that's got to be tough. And I said, well, why? What do you mean? And she said, well, you know, going to church isn't very popular anymore. Wow, interesting thought, okay. So she's right. I don't know if you're aware of this, but the church attendance in the United States is on, de- on the decline um, in, in mainline denominations, especially in the Catholic Church and in Lutheran and in Methodist churches. They've had like an 8 to 12% drop-off just in the last few years. Huge decline in attendance. The only churches that are growing in the United States are non-denominational evangelical churches, So you can name a few of those around the Lansing area. New Hope Hope happens to be one of those. So I I wanted to talk with you about why people, first of all, stop going to church. And specifically, what I put in your notes this morning in your bulletin when you came in, you're going to see some statistics there on the right-hand side. They're also going to be up on the screen because this component of these statistics are really geared towards 18-year-olds to 29-year-olds and why do they check out of church attendance. It uh, comes from Barner Research Group, and then this book that you see underneath those statistics called You Lost Me, it was produced out of these statistics. But here's just three of the things that really popped out of this study called You Lost Me. And the first one is doubt. 32% say the church is not a safe place to express doubts. Kind of like someone saying, you know, I'm not really sure I'm going to like heaven all that much. I'm not sure it really is meeting up to my expectations. Well, that, that's a doubt, all right? People want to be in a place where they can be honest with each other. So we learn here 25% have serious doubts they'd like to discuss. These are people who are non-church attenders that are saying that. The next one is absenteeism. This individual said, because I was looking for Jesus and could not find him there. Well, that's a commentary on the church. How interesting. So as a result of that, one-fifth say God is absent from their church experience. Well, that's horrible. For people to come to church and not be able to experience God at all? What's going on there? Obviously, the word of God is not alive to them. Obviously, the worship is not alive. The next one is shallow. It says one-fourth say Bible teaching is unclear. Or 33% say the church is boring and irrelevant, so why should I bother? I might as well go golfing. I might as well go do my Christmas shopping. There's a lot of other things that we could fill our time with, and people are doing it all over the metro Lansing area today. Because they've got this hole in their heart, the church didn't meet that hole in their heart, so they decided to check out. So what does God's design for the church look like? What is it supposed to be? In your bulletin, as well as the notes, you have blank three-by-five index cards. There's two of them in each of the bulletins. That's for you to share with the person next to you in case um, your spouse or your friend didn't grab one. You can hand one to them. Here's what I'd like you to do. Grab one of the ink pens from the pew rack in front of you, or out of your purse, or out of your pocket, and I would like for you to write down on that index card what you believe to be God's top four priorities for his church. If you were to list in just one descriptive word what you think God's top priorities are for his church, the way the Bible defined it, what would those be? Why gather together? What's the purpose in it? I'm just going to give you a minute to write that down. Some of you are working hard, some of you are doodling, <laughs> some of you wonder, to no, know how I know you're doodling, because if we put cameras up in the ceiling, <laughs> and some of you are looking, <laughs> that's great, <laughs> there's no cameras in the ceiling. <laughs> Let's give you another minute. Okay, what I'd like you to do is, is hang on to those because I'm going to give you something to compare your list against. And I want you to hang on to them until next week, because today we're going to do two components, and next week we're going to do two components. What are God's top four priorities? What, when we ask ourselves this question, what should we be like as a church, we think in terms of God saying that his people are supposed to be a fragrant aroma. We're supposed to be really pleasing to the nostrils. So as I'm thinking of that, I read my daughter's post on Facebook this last week. Ashley had, had posted a little comment that she had received from uh, a young man that she was with. He was 10 years old, and he goes to our church, but she thought it was so cute she posted it on Facebook, and this is, this is what happened. This young guy, this 10-year-old, um, wanted to have his own cologne, all right. He told his mom and dad he wanted a smell all his own that belonged to him. He never owned his own aftershave, okay? So he, he told his mom and dad, his mom and dad said, fine, let's, that's fine. Um, you can have your own cologne. So they took him to the mall. And he went up to the counter where they sell colognes and he told the lady what he wanted. And she said, well, uh, what kind of a smell would you like? And his response was, well, I want a smell that tells people about me. And she said, well, what would you like that smell to say? And he said, that I'm awesome. Isn't that great? Okay, so his, his concept is that he's awesome. I love a 10-year-old's honesty. Scripture says we're supposed to have a fragrant aroma that is so powerful that everyone around us would say, God is awesome. Does the church look like that today? Or is it the opposite is true, and that's why people are bailing and finding other things to do, like going Christmas shopping? What did God actually intend for his church to look like? Well, what I'm going to ask you to do is turn to Acts chapter 2 this morning, if you have your Bible, and you'll have the passages up on the screen as well. Acts chapter 2 is kind of like God's guidelines for what the early church looked like And so I'm going to ask you just to stick your finger there in Acts chapter 2 while I read for you Colossians 1.16. This is where we're going to start. Colossians 1.16 says this, For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. All things, the church included. By him and for him. So the word created I had underlined there on the slide because it's the word in the Greek language katizo, And katizo literally means the one who fabricated the original form. Kind of like a tool and die maker who makes that original die. The katidzo is the one who makes a one of a kind. So our God is an original with a capital O. Everything he does is original. He shows up in your life different than he shows up in my life. We're completely unique and different from each other because our God is original. So we discover right away we would dishonor the king of creation to create a cookie-cutter image of his church, stamp after stamp after stamp. We don't look alike. We're not supposed to look like a church in Chicago or a church in California or a church in Texas. We're unique, and we're supposed to look unique because God's activity cannot be franchised He's unique every time he shows up. That's why he said in Matthew 16, 18, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not overpower it. Do you notice how possessive that is? I and my, it belongs to me. It's highly possessive. So he says, I will build my church. So that means it doesn't come from a business model and it doesn't come from a New York Times bestseller book. It comes from God and God alone. So what is the church? Now obviously we know it's us. But the word church in the Greek language is ekklesia, E-K, ek, meaning come out of. So what has God called us out of and what to? The word ekklesia is used here in 1 Peter 2.9, meaning we're a really distinctive people. This is what it says about us. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood. This is not talking about Israel. This is talking about the church. A holy nation, a people for God's own possession Now, there's times when you would admit you don't feel very holy. Things going on in your life, things that you've participated in, you'd say, that doesn't apply to me. I'm not very holy. Well, I'm here to tell you, God sees you as holy if you're a believer in Jesus Christ. He sees you through the lens of Jesus because of what Jesus did for you. And so you're called a holy people, a people for God's own possession. That word is hagios, and it means sacred. You've been consecrated and set apart. So not only have you been called out, you're also viewed by God as holy. Now let's use that together in 2 Timothy 1.9 and see what he says about us. He has saved us and has called us, that's ecclesia, he's called us out with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. So what that tells me is that God has a purpose for my life. He's called us out. He's called you out. He's made us distinctive. And he has a purpose specifically for using us. And that purpose is found in Christ alone. Now, let's just get it out on the table that a lot of people would look at the church and say, yeah, well, the church today has become a show. It's just a big show. It doesn't seem to be real in people's lives. Why should it have any impact in my life? Traditions... Opinions, church fights, battles with one another, uh, the denominational beliefs, different music styles, they all become really distasteful to people. And especially the latest models and building expansion programs, they hurt people. And all of this has built layer upon top of layer upon top of layer. And it's caused people to just scream out, whatever happened to the first century church? Where's the church Jesus described? Here's what we're going to do in Acts chapter 2. We're going to look over the shoulder of an early believer who was part of the early church. And he's getting a letter from Dr. Luke. Luke wrote the book of Acts. And he's written this letter to a young man by the name of Theophilus. And he's telling Theophilus about what the early church is supposed to look like. So let's just briefly look over his shoulder. These these writings are so emotional. You can hear the flicker of the flame. You you can see the wax dripping on the candle as Paul sits down to write this to him because the writings are just soaked in emotion. What's going on here? The followers of Jesus are discovering that they're part of something that is much, much bigger than what they thought it was. They thought they were doing good with just the few hundred that had gathered together after Jesus' resurrection. They had no idea that God is about to blow the doors off the place and expand it to a global movement. Here's the setting. Peter and the disciples are gathered together in an upper room. It's after the resurrection and the ascension. Jesus is gone. Jesus told them to wait in Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit arrives. The Holy Spirit arrives. They're in the room praying and worshiping God. And when the Holy Spirit arrives, it comes with such a rush of wind. People think that there's a tornado in Jerusalem. People out in the temple rush into the courtyard, not just the disciples, but thousands of people are looking around trying to figure out, where is the sound of a storm coming from? So Peter and the disciples enter the courtyard of the temple, and they begin speaking in different languages. As a matter of fact, when you look at Acts chapter 2 and you see the list of the nations represented, there's Greeks, there's Romans, there's Arabs, There's people from the island of Crete, there's people from Egypt, and they're all hearing the disciples speak in their native tongue, and they're confused, they can't understand what's going on here. How is this possible? Well, at that moment, Peter stands up, he begins to explain the story of salvation, and as a result, 3,000 people respond, and they say, yeah, we're in, we totally get this. What do we do? Peter says, repent, be baptized, and instantly they're in the church. So now the church in Jerusalem in one day has gone from 500 people to 3,500 people. What do you do? What do you do? You've got a management nightmare on your hands. 3,500 people who are instantly want to be taught. They want to understand God's word. They need to know what is he saying to us. So Acts chapter two, verse 42 is a reality check of what the church is supposed to look like. Look with me on the screen or in your own Bibles, and let's start with verse 42. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Verse 43, everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common and they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. Notice they got a single mind action, a single source of course. They're devoted completely to four things right from the top. Learning, loving, worship, prayer. Prayer. So when you pull out our ink pens from the pew rack and you see learning, loving, worship, prayer, there's a reason that those are on the ink pens and on our website and everything that we do because it comes right from Acts chapter two. Learning is teaching, the fellowship, the worship, the prayer. So if you have anything less than these, you don't have a church. Without biblical teaching, without loving, without worship, And certainly without prayer, you can't have a church. So what you have in front of you is a list of God's top four priorities right on his three-by-five index card. And anything less than this, you have a nice gathering of people or you have a social club but not a church. I talked to some individuals who came last night to the Saturday night service. It was their third time here, and they came from a place across town um, in which that church has decided to no longer teach the Bible so they showed up here saying we've been in our church 27 years and now they've decided they're not going to teach God's word anymore so here we are see that's what's happening to people they're feeling frustrated without the teaching of God's word you don't have a church people don't want to be part of that so a new hope is built around these four principles, learning, loving, and worship and prayer. But rather than just saying it, let's examine why, and that's why we're just gonna do two this morning, the learning and the loving. Verse 42 says, they continually devoted themselves. What were they doing there? The word is persevere when it says devoting. They were persevering no matter what the odds were. They were persevering to a single focus, single-minded about teaching, fellowship, worship, and prayer. So verse 42 and verse 43 really amplify the teaching aspect of what's going on. The disciples are fresh from sitting at the feet of Jesus. It's all right there in their brain. And the Holy Spirit is bringing it to memory. And so they begin teaching people in this setting. And God used signs and wonders to authenticate the message. Let me show you verse 43 on the screen. It says this, As a result, everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, and many wonders and signs were taking place, through the apostles. Now the problem with the English language compared to the Greek language is that we put in a lot of punctuations that they didn't have. So I underlined the area as it should read in the original language. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe. Stop. That everyone kept feeling a sense of awe actually should be in verse 42 and not in verse 43 because everyone kept feeling a sense of awe because of the apostles' teaching. And because of the apostles' love, and because of the worship, and because of the prayer, everyone was feeling a sense of awe. The word awe is phobos, means fear, a holy, godly fear. And then, as a component of that, wonders and signs were taking place among them because they had the four priorities right, and God was working through the apostles. So when we start with teaching and put that at the very top of the list and say, learning, loving, worship, prayer, it's because God had it at the top, the teaching component, because we believe this to be 100% the inspired word of God, nothing less than that. And if it's anything less than that, we have a huge problem. It's not just a collection of myths and stories that were handed down to us. I had an individual approach me who said, you know, I've got this uh, uh, nine-year-old son at home, and I read Bible stories to him at night. And when I get to stories like Jonah and the whale and Daniel and the lion's den, I'm not really sure if I should read those to him because they're not like real, are they? Okay, yeah, they are. And, and so it's just a person who is very new to church, didn't know the difference, and just assumed because people had told him it was myth. It's not myth. That's God's activity in Daniel's life. That's what God was doing in his midst. So what we understand is all scripture is profitable, Everything is beneficial. That's what we're told in 2 Timothy 3:16. All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. Do you notice it doesn't say some? Okay? It says all. It's not some scripture. It's all scripture. Every component of it. So there's no picking and choosing. So here's the truth. Learning is not only discovering new truth And we discover a lot of new truth as we're working through the the text together. But it's also getting rid of baggage, leaving behind things that you learned that were false. So sometimes people have to unlearn in order to learn more appropriately. Here's a a real truth of a growing church. Some people here couldn't name the books of the Bible if their life depended upon it. And, And even one step further, most likely they couldn't cite three to four verses of the Bible. That's not meant to be condescending, not at all. Many in Scripture are like this. Can you imagine 3,000 people in one day who had previously had no knowledge of Jesus, and now all of a sudden they're in the church? That's you. If you're in that category, you're part of the early church. The early church was made up of people who were just starting out. They didn't know what they didn't know. So they're not stupid, they're just uninformed, So people have to be taught to think theologically. And New Hope is a great starting point. That's why we have the classes that we do. That's why we teach the Bible the way that we do. So people really understand what is God's word saying. So we start here. Start by admitting, I have never been taught to track life theologically before. And I want to, I want to understand God's word because of this truth. The enemy feeds on the untaught. The enemy feeds on the untaught. And churches today, especially those who have deviated away from teaching God's word, are filling their pews with the untaught. Uh, Here's another group of people that represent New Hope. Others have been raised in church, and, and they've been part of a denomination previously at another time in their life. But now they're at New Hope, and they discover that they know more about denominational thinking than what they do about biblical thinking. And so we have to frame our, our mindset around what does God's word say about this issue? Now, here's another truth. Some don't know why they believe what they believe. Because Uncle Ed told me. Or my grandpa told me. Or my mom said it was this. Way. What does God say? as opposed to what your relatives or your friends say. So you can see why solid teaching belongs in every facet of New Hope, from children's ministry right on through worship. That's why God raised it to such a high level. And the method of teaching we use here is expository teaching. And the reason we do that, it's called exegetical teaching. It's pulling the meaning out of the text, verse by verse, word by word. And the reason for that is because the word of the Lord endures forever. Topics come and go and change, but God's word never changes. It's always the same, so it always speaks to your life when you make it come alive. That's why we have the focus that we do. So that's number one, teaching. Number two, this is the last one for today, is the, the subject of loving, learning and loving. And number two, it says in verse 44, and all those who had believed were together and had all things in common, and they began selling their properties and possessions And we're sharing them with all, as anyone might have need. How radical is that? Can you imagine that setting? Now, let's contrast this view, because I have conversations with people in their 20s, and they look at that passage and say, cool, look at that. Why can't the church be like that today? But then you talk with older people who have lots of possessions, and they look at that and say, I'm not sure that really applies to us today. Um, I mean, I got like a lot of possessions, okay? So, you're, really? So, and they began selling the I think that was just for the first century church, okay? <laughs> so people look at that and say, whoa, that is totally radical. Well, let me help you with this. This is not communism, okay? Communism is taking from people and redistributing it. Communism is sharing it willingly, So what we're talking about here is an absence of selfishness, an absence of greed, an absence of competition. And this is what got the first century church started so that it could function. The word that's used here is koinos. You can see the definition on the screen. It means literally shared by all. This church represents that very well today. I'll expand on that in just a minute. But I'm going to help you with this principle because it cuts across all levels of status. It cuts across all levels of earning income. Some of you know that I have family members who are going through cancer struggles right now. Um, My dad's dealing with stage four pancreatic cancer and my sister-in-law, Pam, who's only 48 years old, has an 11-year-old at home, is dealing with stage four bone cancer. Now, Pam's cancer is so advanced that it really pains her to walk. She's taking like eight to 10 Vicodin a day just to try and function, to keep the pain level down to the point where she could still drive and still be a mom without them taking her license. But it's so hard for her to go to church. I'm going to play a video for you in just a moment, and this video is like 60 seconds long. It's the church being the church. Because Pam couldn't go to worship with the church, they decided to bring the church to her. So I apologize in advance for some of the wind noise you're going to hear, and my my niece didn't know that her thumb was on the microphone, but I want you to just appreciate what's going on in the background, and then I'll explain it. Let's play that video. You know what you saw in that crowd? 120 people, 80-year-olds, 20-year-olds, business owners, factory workers, stay-at-home moms, who recognized that someone in their body was hurting, So they brought the church to them. They didn't know they were coming. So, you know, that's why my niece ran out with her phone and tried to capture this thing on video. Because what you saw in the window was my dad and my sister-in-law, Pam, watching out the window. Overwhelmed. And when they finished singing, all 120 people formed a big circle around the house and began praying over them, holding hands together. And what my dad watched next was the most amazing thing. The doors of their neighbors' houses opened, and people walked out and got in line with them and began praying together. One guy said to my dad afterwards, I didn't even know who I was standing next to praying with, but this is so cool. Is that a fragrant aroma? Does that make you step back and go, smell that. That's an aroma that is attractive to the world to the degree that people say, What an awesome God. I want to be part of a church like that. So our our church is part of those kind of activities when we go out and rake people's lawns and we clean people's eaves troughs and we share washers and dryers together. And maybe you got an extra set at your home and you know, you know some young couple that has a need. Maybe somebody needs a car, and I, I see that stuff happening all the time here. That's the kind of stuff we want to model. That's why we have this Compassionate Care Fund. Uh, Vicki Palmer oversees this Compassionate Care team. And when you pull out your offering envelopes each week and you see that little category on there, Benevolence Fund or Compassionate Care, that's what that's for, is to help people who can't pay their power bills or they need gas in their car so they can go to a job interview or to put food on the table. That's what that's about. Compassionate care. That's the church being the church because people want to be part of that. And I will tell you the truth, for me personally, I really don't care how big we get as a church. What I care about is how deep we get in Christ. I want to know that being part of a biblical community is more than just a sign out on the street. And I'll tell you, that sign catches a lot of people's attention. People come in here and, and visit and come to services and say, yeah, I saw that sign, biblical community, I just wondered, what is that? And I get a chance to explain it to them, but it better be more than just a sign on the street or it's meaningless to people. And it's not that numbers are not important. Numbers are merely an indicator. So if we're growing, and we are, it's merely an indicator of what God's doing among us. Let me close with you by going to verse 47 this morning. Verse 47 says, And the Lord was adding to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. See, adding numbers is a natural outgrowth if you're a biblical community. If you're doing the learning and the loving, we'll get to worship and prayer next week, but if you're doing the learning and loving appropriately, the growth is the end product. It's not the focus of who we are and what we do. I will tell you, around Lansing, many people are caught up in the growth of New Hope. I have conversations on a weekly basis, multiple conversations, with people who are asking questions about, well, how big are you now? And that's, I understand that. When you go from 17 to 700 in five years, that really gets people's attention. And and when we have that kind of growth, we can point and say, God's doing something significant. Rarely do I ever have people say, what is God doing in your midst, though? So when I have the numbers conversation with people, I just point them to, here's what God's doing in our midst. Let me tell you about learning and loving and worship and prayer. You can have that same conversation, too, because you're part of this community. So let me sum it up this way. God has enjoined, invited us to join him in his work, not the other way around. It was God's plan to institute this church. I didn't come up with this idea. He's, he's the one that ambushed me, okay? And, and many of you are here for that same reason. And, and maybe you don't like the word ambush, but I didn't see it coming. I totally didn't expect it. I didn't know that God was going to do this, but it was his plan. So it's his plan. We're joining him in his work, not the other way around. So that requires us coming to him and saying, God, what do you want the church to look like? Well, I've already shown you in Acts chapter 2, learning, loving, worship, prayer. So here's our responsibility, and I put it in your notes this morning. Let's work with the Creator to commit to four things each week. That's what I'm going to ask you to do. Let's let's work with the Creator to advance the kind of church that this region needs. And here's the four things. You'll find them in your notes as well. Come to the services each week to discover more of God. That means preparing your hearts in advance. Not rushing out the door last minute and yelling at the kids. Okay, Preparing your hearts in advance with your family. Trying to get your mind in focus. What does God want to say to me? And many times, it doesn't take place in here. Many times, it takes place in parking lot conversations and in the atrium over a cookie and a cup of coffee as you learn about what God's doing in someone else's life as part of being a community together. So come to the service to discover more of God. But number two, hang out with your church family. And I know many of you are doing that. But as new people keep coming, and especially in the month of December, there's a lot of new people coming in. Spend time with those individuals as well. Hang out with your church family. Do life together. Number three, serve in a ministry in some way. Whether that means you signing up for the mission trip to Kenya or signing up to change diapers downstairs, I don't know. I don't know what area God has gifted you in. Maybe it's to be part of the worship team or to go out and rake somebody's yard. But that's how God knits us together. That's the serving component. And here's the last one. Pray Pray that the power of God would be released in every situation, not only in your life but in the life of the church because if we will work together to build this church the way that God designed it in the Bible, there's no way you will be able to close the doors because there will be so many people streaming in. That's God's plan for his church because this is what Jesus said. My church will push against the gates of hell can you say that's true of the church in America today? It feels like the church is shrinking away from the gates of hell. We're to be advancing with the church. That's what God calls us, called us to do. So let me take you back to 2 Timothy 1 9. This is where we started out this morning. He has saved us, and He has called us with a holy calling. So He sees you as holy, not according to our works but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. His purpose for your life is found in Christ alone. And I will tell you that I believe it's found in the work of the church when the church is functioning the way that God intended for it to function. He has a plan for you. He has a destiny for you. And you can discover that when you're part of his work. People come from all regions to be part of a work like that. We have people driving here all the way from Grand Ledge, all the way from outside of Perry to the east side, people from all the way down to Leslie because they want to be part of what they hear is going on in God's work. I'll illustrate it for you this way. Moms and dads who have college-age students or those who are in high school getting ready to go to college, grandparents, Whose kids are in college, or you've seen your own grandkids coming up the ranks, you spend a lot of time and energy on researching colleges to determine where that young person in your life is supposed to go. And we spend money, and we spend effort to send our young people to institutions in Ohio, in New York and Florida and California, because we believe that the best of the best is located at that institution. And what they're going to do is build into the life of our young person. And so we go to great lengths to make sure they get into that institution so that they will be in a social setting that will build into them. And they will be in an educational setting that will strengthen them. Wouldn't that be true of the church? That people would go to great lengths to be part of a church that God really intended, that God was passionate about, that is so powerful that the gates of hell could not hold it back. That's the kind of church I want to be part of, and I know you do too. That's what God called us to be. Because here's the truth all over Lansing this morning, you've got friends that are out shopping. They're getting ready to watch the Detroit Lions. They've already bought their snacks, they're sitting down, they're waiting for the game to start. Because they've been to church and they tried it and it didn't work. And there's a God sized hole in their heart and they do not know how to fill it. You know the answer. God's word has the answer. We have to marry the two together. Let me pray with you that God will seal this in our heart. Father, this work that you've called us to do is bigger than any one of us can do. It might seem overwhelming even at this moment. But all things are possible through you and through the power of your Holy Spirit. And if you said your church will prevail against the gates of hell, it will prevail against the gates of hell. There's not even a question in our mind. But Father, we're really hard-pressed to look around our nation even and see very many churches that look like that. God, make that true of us. As you grow us as a body, as we learn, as we love, as we worship and we pray together, Father, make it true of us that people would say, what a fragrant aroma and what an awesome God. Father, we we put this before you asking that you would empower us to accomplish what we can't do on our own and we ask it in Jesus' mighty name, amen. Have a great week, New Hope.